As you can open up to 1 Samuel, we'll be in chapter 13. I also wanted to say thank you to the women's ministry team for all the work they did. I, I was here for a little bit of the conference and just peeked in here and there to listen, and I was just amazed that the vast majority of the conference was not this church, women who do not go to this church, so maybe some that weren't even believers. I do know our conference, that women's conference, has sort of become the women's conference of our presbytery. So many, uh, several other churches send, their, send groups of women here. So I just want to thank the women's ministry team for just all the, the hard work they put into planning it and um, executing it. It was, it was a blessing to see, to see um, women studying the word together. So that's, that's just a great testimony for our church as well, and a, and a great mission field as well. So thank you so much for that. It was a blessing to me. We are in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, <clears throat> taking a, a, a little bit of a break in the past couple weeks. Thank Ruffin again for coming to preach last Sunday. We'll be looking at the entire chapter of verse 13, or chapter 13. <clears throat> um, and here we're beginning to see Saul sort of as king. We're seeing him in his, uh, in his reign, in his rule. And uh, the next several chapters, 13, 14, 15, we'll be dealing with that. We'll be dealing, looking at Saul, and see, we're going to see how he's doing. Before we jump in, I wanted to deal with verse 1. It's a little bit of a textual conundrum, a textual issue. Um, some of your versions may say, like the ESV reads, Saul lived for one year and then became king, and, then, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, and then continues. If you have an NIV, it probably says, or I think it says, for Saul lived or was 30 years old, and then became king, and then he reigned for 42 years over Israel. The, the issue is the underlying Hebrew copies that we have. Basically, it says in the, in the original Hebrew, it says that Saul was a son of years, meaning he was like one year old. What many text, what scholars think is the number dropped out at some point. Um, that As they were making copies, we just don't have the exact number. So, Different translations are trying to deal with this problem in different ways. Um, the way the ESV has taken it is that he lived for a year after he was basically made king, and then he, he's, at this point he's reigning for two years. Um, and so I think the best way to understand it is errors sometimes are made when, when copies and copies. We're not talking about the originals of what God has given us, but in the process of thousands of years, I mean, think about it, the Bible is huge. Think about it uh, in terms of just millions of grains of sand. And we see little issues sometimes and little errors, not, not errors in the truth of the Bible, the overarching major truths, but we see some difficult texts sometimes where we just don't have all the information. And this is one of those texts. So that's why you, your translations may be slightly different between the ESV and NIV. But I'm going to go with what the ESV says here and read it, and we'll go from there. Um, I think perhaps one way you could read the ESV correctly and, and the way they're doing is that, that he was basically king for two years. And that's the way God saw it. And we'll see why he was only king in God's eyes for two years because of what he chose to do in this passage and in this chapter. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word, if you're able. We stand out of respect, not for the reader, not for me, but for God, who's the speaker. And this is his word. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 
2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of, his pe- the rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Well, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you didn't come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to him, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army, and they went from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash, and raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual, another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. Every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Says God's word, you may be seated. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we come before you, thankful for your word. Would you bless it as we hear it, as we read it? Would you give us understanding? And more than that, would you give us a heart that obeys, that listens, that hears, and wants to do your word? Teach us, Father. Show us more of yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Have you ever heard that saying? Many of us know that saying. It's common. It's, it's, um, nobody, no one really knows who first said it. There are different versions and variations of it. But it captures the idea that's front and center in our text this morning. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. What do we mean when we say that? Well, it's the idea that the road to destruction, the road to ruin, is sometimes achieved and reached unintentionally because of the poorly planned actions that we've done. An example of this is, in the age of the internet, there's a common effect or a common phenomenon called the Streisand effect. Anybody know Barbara Streisand? It was dubbed that name after her because in 2003, the American singer, pseudo-photographer, Kenneth Adelman and Pictopia.com for $50 million for violation of privacy. So her lawsuit sought to remove an aerial photograph of her mansion on the California coast. Uh, And it was a part of this project, California Coastal Records Project, that was taking pictures of coastal erosion along California's coast. And she didn't want her picture in that group of photos. She didn't want people to see it. She wanted, her, she wanted her privacy. Well, she lost the lawsuit. Her, it was dismissed, and she was ordered to pay this photographer $177,000 for his legal fees. But that wasn't the worst of her problems. The image had only been downloaded six times before the lawsuit was brought. Two of those were by her own attorneys. So after the, the lawsuit happened, it led to more than 420,000 people visiting the site over the course of that month. The Streisand effect is this example of what psychologists call psychological reactance, wherein once people are aware that some information is being kept from them, they're significantly more motivated to access and spread that information. In a failed attempt to keep her property private, Streisand's plan backfired, and it led to more people viewing her mansion than ever before, including me this week. Right? So it's still failing. So, and we see this happen in the age of the internet. This happens all the time because access to information is just abundant now. And people can dig up any old material they want to. So it backfired for her. But in a similar way, Saul had good intentions, didn't he? He wanted to offer the sacrifice. But they backfired uh, greatly. And so we're entering a few chapters where we're going to see a lot of failure. One commentator puts it, the dominant feeling in these three chapters, 13, 14, 15, is not of success, but of failure. So get ready for some sobering weeks in 1 Samuel. And so in this episode, all Saul had to do was follow the instructions that Samuel had given him. And God would have blessed him in his reign as king, but instead... He decided to take matters into his own hands and sacrifice the burnt offering instead of waiting for Samuel. If you, if you flip back to chapter 10, we can see the exact instructions that was given to Saul by Samuel. So chapter 10, beginning in verse 8. These are the instructions. After he's anointed as king, chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel said to Saul, Then go down before me to Gilgal. Behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait, 
until I come to you, and I will show you what you shall do. So that was the instruction. The instruction was clear, but Saul succumbed to the difficulty of the moment and the rising tide of the Philistine army, and he went off script. Right? He went off script. He, he tried to do his own thing. Well, lest we just heap judgment upon Saul, isn't it easy to think and act like Saul did? We've all had moments in our lives where we knew what God has clearly said, what he's clearly laid down for us in his word. But in the heat of the moment, when life got difficult, we thought we knew better. And so we took the reins and we went our own way. So this morning, God's teaching us something very important about our relationship with him. And it's this, that he wants your obedience, not your good intentions. You can have the best intentions in the world, but God would rather have your simple trust in obedience. And so we're going to analyze that idea that he wants our obedience, not our good intentions, in three ways. We're going to look first at the priority of obedience, that there's this priority that he has for us in our obedience. And then, secondly, the problem of our disobedience, the problem of our disobedience. And thirdly, the point. What's the whole point? How do we move forward? The point is Christ's obedience is Christ's obedience. So first, let's look at the priority of obedience. Well, first, let's look at the king himself. What was he supposed to do? This was laid out by Samuel in chapter 12, verse 14 through 15. He lays out what this, the king is supposed to do, how he's supposed to fulfill his task. He says, if you, talking to all the people, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. You see, the the king and the people are supposed to submit to the Lord, to Yahweh. But if the opposite happens, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So this king of Israel was supposed to be in subjection and obedience to Yahweh. So that was the first idea, that the king is supposed to be obedient, but also the entire people. God always wanted to make a holy people. That's always been the goal, that we would be holy like God himself. In Leviticus 19, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. So we're supposed to be holy like him. That idea is echoed in First Peter, in the New Testament, where Peter writes that you yourselves, talking about the church, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And he continues in verse 9 of chapter 2, First Peter, but you're a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's always been the goal of God's people, that he wants us to be holy. He wants us to be obedient. Now, you may be saying, Blake, you, 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 you preach the gospel a lot. You preach grace and not law. It seems like you're preaching law now, that we're made right by how we are obedient. Well, first let me say that's 
that let's not remove obedience from love and grace. That in relationship with God, there is love, there is grace, but it doesn't mean he doesn't ask things of us. In Deuteronomy 11, we see this combination of, of love and commands. He says, If you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. He says again in verse 22, If you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God. Loving and commands are together. Obedience expresses love. Jesus was the same way in his life, in his ministry. He obeyed the Father out of love. He said in John 14, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Obedience to command is not the opposite of love. And he says something to us. Jesus says something to you and I. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We're to, we're to obey him. So there's a connection between love and obedience, but also there's a connection between grace and obedience in the Scriptures. And that's most clearly seen in the prelude to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, uh, first being, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the Lord's God uh, name in vain. Make images. You should not make images. So what is before that, though? What's before the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt? Out of the house of slavery. Did you hear that? I am the Lord your God who saved you. Therefore, obey me. You shall have no other gods before me. You see the connection between grace and commands. I'm for you. I've saved you. I love you. Now obey And so we show our love, you and I show our love for God through our obedience to him. God wants our obedience. You understand this, if you've ever parented children, you understand this, that you want your kids' obedience. It delights my soul and Hannah's soul when our kids obey us. When we tell them to put their shoes away, to clean their room, uh, all these menial tasks to them, probably seem insignificant and a burden and not fun. But when they obey us in those ways, it delights our soul. Because what it tells me is that there's trust there. There's love there, especially when they do it without grumbling. That we have this relationship, and they want to delight us. And it does bring us delight. It's easy to overlook the times when they, when they are good and, and obey But between you and God, ask yourself the question, when you're encountering tough decisions, tough circumstances, ask yourself this question, what is the next right thing that God is asking me to do? Nine times out of ten, it's very clear. It's very obvious. It's easy to follow. Well, it's not easy to follow, but it's easy to know what he wants us to do. Ask yourself, What command from God is abundantly clear in God's word, but difficult for me to follow? I think for our culture and and for many of of us today is the sexual ethic of the Bible. That marriage is between one man and one woman in a covenant of marriage. And that we're not supposed to, to lust 
after women. We're not supposed to lust after anyone that we're not, we're not married to. We're not supposed to commit adultery. These are abundantly clear lines that God has drawn. What it means to be a man and a woman. There's this video that's kind of gone viral on the internet, and it's of Mr. Rogers. And he's singing a song, and the song, uh, this is from like the 70s, and the song, uh, I believe, is titled um, Everybody's Fancy. And it's talking about how we are made in uh, God's image. We, we are all made for a reason. Our bodies are what they are for a reason. And one of the lines he says is, if you're born a boy, you stay a boy. If you're born a girl, you stay a girl, and you grow up to be a mommy. And only mommies, uh, and only women can be mommies. Only dads can be, only men can be fathers. And back in the 70s, right, that was taken for granted. Now, um, everybody, if you lean liberal, is, is outraged. And, but for many of us, that's obvious, right? This is, this is not difficult to know. Um, but many in our culture, this is, this is confusing times for them, where many people are lost. What you could have said, what Mr. Rogers could have said in the 70s, you would now maybe be disciplined for saying that such a thing in the public schools today. So that is maybe clear to us, but what about other things that God has told us that are abundantly clear but difficult to follow? How about us and and our money and our wealth and God calling us to be generous, to be sacrificial with our money and giving to those in need? How are we doing there? Is that difficult for you to follow these things. Think about the commands that are difficult specifically for you and in your walk. There's this prayer in the Old Testament in, in um, Second Chronicles. The king Jeho- Jeho- Jehoshaphat, great name. He has this prayer that I think grasps this so well. As the Moabites and Ammonites are coming to attack Israel and they, this hordes of people coming to attack them, and they have no really hope of survival. He says this prayer, beautiful prayer. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that's coming against us. This is the line I love. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You hear the simplicity in that prayer? I don't know what to do. All I know to do is look to you and look to your word, and look to your commands. It's, it's, it's to say, God, your ways are best. That's all Saul really needed to do to approach this problem. All he had to say is, what did, what did Samuel tell me to do? Oh yeah, wait for him to come on the seventh day, wait for him to arrive, and he would offer the sacrifice, and then I could continue. But he didn't. He took the reins himself. He took his eyes off God, and he cast his vision and his eyes on what he could see. The Philistines. So that leads us to the problem of our disobedience. If the priority is obedience, we often see our own disobedience very clearly. So as we go through chapter 13, you can see that they have some success in the beginning. Saul rightly divides the, uh, the army into, into two camps. He has 3,000 men. Jonathan has 2,000 Jonathan goes up against the garrison of the Philistines and he, and he takes them. The Philistines hear about it. Saul 
uh, announces their victory, and then the Philistines, uh, they muster, and they, they come around, and, and they come after, or begin to set up to come after Saul and Israel. And it's not looking good. There's a reason why he's so scared. Remember, the people are hiding. They're running away from the Philistines. They're going into caves. They're going into tombs to hide, and they're trembling. And so what is the sin for Saul? Well, we, we know what he eventually chooses to do. He makes the sacrifice unauthorized. It was disobedience, wasn't it? But what's the underlying problem? What is he really being driven by? Isn't it self-reliance, ultimately? He's, he's choosing to rely upon his own uh, interpretation, his own, um, his own means, and so like Saul, God gives us real difficult challenges to expose and show us what we're truly relying on. Saul and Israel were being dominated by the Philistines. They were basically occupying the land in Israel. They had taken over, uh, if you see at the very end of our chapter, uh, there was no blacksmith all throughout the land of Israel for the Philistines had taken them away. So they had to get all of their, <clears throat> um, all their uh, work done basically on their, on their um uh, instruments oh, done by the Philistines and pay them uh, well for that. So things weren't looking good. They were being dominated. And so it's in, those, it's in those times where we need to ask, how often do we choose to disobey God when life gets hard or even slightly inconvenient? Sometimes God takes away the things that allow us to rely on ourselves. And he does that so that we see what we truly need. He was focused on what he could see and what he wanted in the moment, but not God. And so what do we see Saul controlled by? Well, first we see self-reliant people ultimately are controlled by fear. Fearing the wrong things, not fearing God. Look at verse 12. What does he say? He says, Now the Philistines, I said to myself, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, so I have not sought the favor, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself. And I offered the burnt offering. He's saying, basically, I compelled myself. I saw the situation and I forced myself into action because of fear. He reacted impulsively because of fear. Self-reliant people are controlled by fear. Self-reliant people also must have the approval of others. He's image conscious, isn't Saul? Look back at verse 4. This is when he is announcing... Um, he's announcing the victory of Jonathan. And so Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all, the is- all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. But it was actually Jonathan who did. So the word that he sent out was basically that he had done it. He took the uh, credit. He feels inadequate in himself. Remember the scene of him hiding in the baggage. Right? He, he doesn't feel adequate. The self-reliant people must have approval from others. Self-reliant people must also look good before others. It's an image thing. Where do we see that? We see that in verse 11 where he's talking to Samuel, responding to what have you done? He says, well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. Look at the examples he's using of why he did what he did. Isn't he blame-shifting? He's posturing. When I saw that the people, not me, the people were scattering from me, and 
Samuel, you didn't come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. It reminds me of Genesis 3, isn't it? When, when God is, is, is asking Adam, or to, you know, what have you done? Why have you done this? Why have you not listened to me? What is Adam's response? Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? And Adam said, well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Do you see Saul is doing the same thing? He's casting, he's pointing the finger at everything around him. But he's not thinking about his own actions of what he did. The last thing we see here that self-reliant people do, you end up isolating yourself when you're relying solely on yourself. And you isolate yourself from God and his word. One of the key things that happens in this passage is that Samuel departed from Saul. Why is that significant? Samuel is the prophet of God. He has the word of God. And he leaves Saul's presence. That signals to, to really to us that Saul was left alone now to fight his own battles. He had rejected God's word. Del Ralph Davis, a commentator, says, Many Israelites had hidden to save their skins. Weapons were unobtainable. Raiders were freeloading throughout Israel. The troops Saul did have were demoralized. But the worst of Saul's liabilities was that he was without the guidance of Yahweh from his prophet. It's one thing to be in terrible distress. It is another to be in that distress alone. Saul had isolated himself from what he needed most, the word of Yahweh for his way. He needed God's word, but now he was alone. Verse 15, Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went after Saul to meet the army. Reminds me of a time in my own life where... um, this was after college, just graduated from James Madison, and I'd just gotten my first job, not making much, I made about 30000 a year, so not much at all. But it was just enough where I felt independent, I felt I was finally, I graduated college, I was out on my own, uh, living with friends, had a girlfriend who I was going to be engaged with soon, and I was out on my own, I had my own job. And it was probably where I most struggled with my prayer life at that time. Because I had a taste of a little bit of authority or independence. I didn't pray as much. I didn't trust God during that time. I felt distant. I felt dry from Him. Because I was enjoying this new life. I was enjoying time away. I was enjoying making some money and it was dividing me. It was wedging me away from God. And we're all sort of like Saul in that way. When we have authority, when we have been given a position of power, many people fall into that trap of not submitting to God, not trusting in Him, but instead going our own way. There's a story in in Scotland 
or James the Sixth, the king of Scotland, uh, would often sit for the preaching of uh, of the preachers there. James, Robert Bruce was the was the one giving the sermon in this instance. This is back in the day when when military and and, and uh, political leaders would actually go to church and 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 you know be be expected to be in church and listen to sermons. Not so much today, but. It says James the Sixth of Scotland was notoriously rude when attending his worship services. On one occasion, he was seated in his gallery with several courtiers while Robert Bruce preached. And in his usual form, James began to talk to those around him. During the sermon, Bruce paused and the king fell silent. Well, the minister resumed and so did James. Bruce ceased speaking a second time. Same result. When the king committed his third offense, Bruce turned and addressed James directly. So he stopped his sermon and he started talking to to King James. He said, It is said to have been an expression of the wisest of kings. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. Well, the lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. Robert Bruce had some courage there. Del Ralph Davis says, Kings easily forget that they're subjects, don't they? And often we feel like little kings and queens in that way, and we easily forget that we're subjects, that we are to obey. God. And so from varying degrees, we've all experienced this. We all are self-reliant in many ways. We've all disobeyed God and are separated from Him. So what's the point? Is this a hopeless endeavor? Are we doomed? Where do we find hope? What's the point of our faith? That leads us to the final point. The point is Christ's obedience. You see, if God demands obedience and we fail to give him the obedience he requires, what is the point? Where do we go? Where do we turn? Let's look again at verses 13 through 15. Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God and with which he's commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. Well, if it's not already obvious, Saul is not the king we've been looking for. Sort of like from the movie A New Hope, Star Wars, when Obi-Wan does the Jedi mind trick, these are not the George you're looking for. Saul's not the king we need. He's not the one we're looking for. But we get a hint of who that will be in verse 14. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. After his own heart. Saul sort of acts as a foil to David. right? We see what we're not supposed to go after and be like in contrast to what we are. And David, the King David who comes after him, is going to fulfill this seeking of the Lord, this heart after the Lord. But David would fall short in time. David would point forward instead to the fulfillment that we all have for an ultimate king in Jesus Christ. You see, Saul's failures point us forward to Christ's perfections. 
you're wondering, how do you, how do you draw Christ out of this passage? He's not mentioned explicitly. Sometimes Christ is preached implicitly. Sometimes he is here because of what Saul is doing wrong. So it leads us to desire and ache for a better king. And that is where we see Jesus. That he's the king ultimately that we've been waiting for. That Saul is, is pointing forward in all the bad things he did. We see instead that Jesus is perfectly obedient, first and foremost. That in Jesus' obedience, he's not just an example. He's not merely an example to us, but he's a substitute for you and I. He was perfect in your place. He's not just something to aspire to, Jesus. We can't. We can't do what he did ultimately. He did it in your place. He did it for you. And he was also a perfect sacrifice. So if Saul's bringing uh, his disobedience, he's trying to do it through offering a sacrifice, Jesus does it through perfect obedience and becoming the sacrifice. And so he's not just an example on the cross of sacrifice, but he's a substitute. He was punished in your place. He took your disobedience upon him. And so we've got to understand what Martin Luther understood when he read Romans 1, verse 17, a verse that tra- changed his life forever, that, which says the righteous shall live by faith. That we get righteousness, we get right standing with God, not by our good works, but by faith in the good works of Jesus. That is where our righteousness comes from. The righteous shall live by faith. Believer, Jesus is the perfect king for you in his obedience and in his sacrifice. So how should we live? Instead of a self-reliant life, how should we live? Well, we should live a God-dependent life. That's how we should do this. I want you to ask yourself throughout this next coming week, how can I be more God-dependent? How can I be more God-reliant and less self-reliant on God? And this isn't easy. I'm not saying any of this is easy. G.K. Chesterton wrote, The Christian ideal has not been found tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. I love that verse, or that, that, that passage from, from Chesterton. The Christian ideal has not been found tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. So I'm asking you to, to try it. And so what kind of faith was God looking for in Saul? It's the same faith that he tested Abraham with on Mount Moriah. He says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your only son. Have you thought about how crazy that is? What? Isaac was the literal embodiment of all of God's promises. I will give you a son and make you into a nation. How backwards and confusing that obedience must have been trying to to Fulfill that to sacrifice your own son. Sometimes it does feel like that, what God asks you to do. Sometimes walking in faith is so difficult. It seems nearly impossible. But brothers and sisters, that's how God designed it. That's how he grows hearts that are consumed with his glory. You find out, this is from Jared Wilson as I, as I close, you find out how deep your faith is, not in the happy days, but in the moments of pain 
in the moments of temptation. That's how you find out how deep and what your faith is in. So ask yourself, who are you or what are you trusting in? And my answer to you is, trust in the perfect obedience and sacrifice of Jesus and your faith and obedience when life is hard will grow. It will grow. Your obedience will grow. And it doesn't mean you're going to have perfect obedience right away. You're going to grow through it. We had a piano tuner come to our house yesterday. And I, we don't think we've ever p- tuned that piano. It sounds like a brand new piano. It's, it's amazing. Um, but as he was wrapping up, uh, he sort of, you know, was trying it out. He's a professional. He's an amazing uh, artist. And he was, just went on a roll playing this classical piece. Ama- uh, that piano had never been touched like that. <laughs> it was amazing. He just played for a few, you know, a few seconds. And, um, and then we were talking about Leland's taking piano lessons. And um, he was like, oh, what do you play? And, he, you know, we talked about how he loves the song Christmas Tree. Oh, Christmas Tree. Oh, Christmas Tree. Oh, Christmas Tree. Well, he went on this whole jazz version of that. And Leland and I were just looking at each other like, uh, this guy's amazing. And I asked him what classical piece he'd played. It was Chopin's Nocturne, something or other. And maybe one day, Leland and I will be good like that. But we're not going to be good like that tomorrow. No. In the same way, your obedience will grow. God isn't asking for you to be a finished product right now. Your obedience and obeying him and trusting in him and following his commandments is day by day to moment by moment. It will take years, but God will do it. He will grow you. Let's pray. <coughs> Dear Lord, I thank you for the promises of your word. I thank you for... I thank you for providing the solution to our problem, which is Christ and his obedience, his perfect righteousness in our place, which we can have by faith, by simply trusting. We thank you for the clear rules and guidance and and the commands you've given us to follow, to make our life better, and for you to be glorified. Help us to stay in your path. And we thank you for Jesus who did it perfectly. In his name we pray. Amen.